0: Chapter 7 of A Popular History of Astronomy During the 19th Century This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Popular History of Astronomy During the 19th Century by Agnes Mary Clerk. Chapter 7 Part 1 Planets and Satellites Johann Hieronymus Schroeder was the Herschel of Germany. He did not, it is true, possess the more brilliant gifts of his rival. Herschel's piercing discernment, comprehensive intelligence, and inventive splendor were wanting to him. He was nevertheless the founder of descriptive astronomy in Germany, as Herschel was in England. Born in Erfurt in 1745, he prosecuted legal studies at Göttingen, and there imbibed from Kastner a lifelong devotion to science. From the law, however, he got the means of living, and what was to the full as precious to him the means of observing. Entering the sphere of Hanoverian officialism in 1788, he settled a few years later at Lilienthal, near bremen as oberamtmann or chief magistrate here he built a small observatory enriched in 1785 with a seven-foot reflector by herschel then one of the most powerful instruments to be found anywhere out of england it was soon surpassed through his exertions by the first fruits of native industry in that branch schrader of Kiel transferred his workshops to lilienthal in 1792 and constructed there under the superintendence and at the cost of the astronomical oberamtmann a thirteen-foot reflector declared by lalanda to be the finest telescope in existence and one twenty-seven feet in focal length probably as inferior to its predecessor in real efficiency as it was superior in size Thus, with the instruments of gradually increasing power, Schurter studied during thirty-four years the topography of the moon and planets. The field was then almost untrodden, he had but few and casual predecessors, and has since had no equal in the sustained and concentrated patience of his hourly watchings. Both their prolixity and their enthusiasm are faithfully reflected in his various treatises, yet the one may be pardoned for the sake of the other, especially when it is remembered that he struck out a substantially new line, and that one of the main lines of future advance. Moreover, his infectious zeal communicated itself. He set the example of observing when there was scarcely an observer in Germany, and under his roof Harding and Bessel received their training as practical astronomers but he was reserved to see evil days early in eighteen thirteen the french under van damme occupied bremen on the night of april twenty the vale of lilies was by their wanton destructiveness laid waste with fire the government offices were destroyed and with them the chief part of schurter's property including the whole stock of his books and writings there was worse behind a few days later, his observatory, which had escaped the conflagration, was broken into, pillaged, and ruined. His life was wrecked with it. He survived the catastrophe three years without the means to repair, or the power to forget it, and gradually sank from disappointment into decay, terminated by death August twenty-ninth, eighteen 1816. He had, indeed, done all the work he was capable of and though not of the first quality it was far from contemptible he laid the foundation of the new comparative study of the moon's surface and the descriptive particulars of the planets laboriously collected by him constituted a store of more or less reliable information hardly added to during the ensuing half century they rested it is true under some shadow of doubt but the most recent observations have tended on several points to rehabilitate the discredited authority of the Lilienthal astronomer. We may now briefly resume and pursue in its further progress the course of his studies, taking the planets in the order of their distances from the Sun. In April 1792, to saw reason to conclude, from the gradual degradation of light on its partially illuminated disk, that mercury possesses a tolerably dense atmosphere during the transit of may seventh seventeen ninety nine he was moreover struck with the appearance of a ring of softened luminosity encircling the planet to an apparent height of three seconds or about a quarter of its own diameter although a mere thought and texture it remained persistently visible both with the seven-foot and the thirteen-foot reflectors armed with powers up to 288 it had a well-marked grayish boundary and reminded him though indefinitely fainter of the penumbra of a sun-spot a similar appendage had been noticed by de plantade at montpelier november eleventh seventeen thirty six and again in seventeen eighty six and seventeen eighty nine by prosperin and. But Herschel, on November 9, 1802, saw the preceding limb of the planet projected on the sun cut the luminous solar clouds with the most perfect sharpness. The presence, however, of a halo was unmistakable in 1832 when Professor Mull of Utrecht described it as a nebulous ring of a darker tinge approaching to the violet color. Again, to Eugens and Stone, November fifth, 1868, it showed as lucid and most distinct. No change in the color of the glasses used or the powers applied could get rid of it, and it lasted throughout the transit. It was next seen by Christie and Duncan at Greenwich, May sixth, 1878, and with much precision of detail by Trovolo at Cambridge, U.S. Professor Holden, on the other hand, noted at Hastings-on-Hudson the total absence of all anomalous appearances. Nor could any vestige of them be perceived by Bonnard at Lick on November 10, 1894. Various effects of irradiation and diffraction were, however, observed by Lowell and W. H. Pickering at Flagstaff, and Davidson was favored at San Francisco with glimpses of the historic Oriola, as well as of a central whitish spot, which often accompanies it. That both are somehow of optical production can scarcely be doubted. Nothing can be learned from them regarding the planet's physical condition. Airy showed that refraction in a Mercurian atmosphere could not possibly originate the noted aureola, which must accordingly be set down as strictly an ocular nervous phenomenon. It is less easy to escape from this conclusion that we find the virtually airless moon capable of exhibiting a like appendage. Professor Stephen Alexander of the United States Survey with two other observers perceived during the eclipse of the Sun of July 18, 1860 the advancing lunar limb to be bordered with a bright band and photographic effects of the same kind appear in pictures of transits of Venus and partial solar eclipses the spectroscope affords little information as to the constitution of mercury its light is of course that of the sun reflected and its spectrum is consequently a faint echo of the freinhofer spectrum dr h c vogel who first examined it in april eighteen seventy one suspected traces of the action of an atmosphere like ours but it would seem on slight grounds it is however certainly very poor and blue rays. More definite conclusions were, in 1874, derived by Zollner from photometric observations of Mercurian phases. A similar study of the waxing and waning moon had afforded him the curious discovery that light changes dependent upon phase vary with the nature of the reflecting surface, following a totally different law on a smooth, homogeneous globe and on a rugged and mountainous one. Now, the phases of Mercury, so far as could be determined from only two sets of observations, correspond with the latter kind of structure. Strictly analogous to those of the Moon, they seem to indicate an analogous mode of surface formation. This conclusion was fully borne out by Mueller's more extended observations at Potsdam during the years 1885 to 1893. Practical assurance was gained from them that the innermost planet has a rough rind of dusky rock, absorbing all but 17% of the light poured upon it by the fierce adjacent sun. Its albedo, in other words, is 0.17, which is precisely that ascribed to the moon. The absence of any appreciable Mercurian atmosphere followed almost necessarily from these results on march eighteen hundred, schroter observing with his thirteen-foot reflector in a peculiarly clear sky perceived the southern horn of mercury's crescent to be quite distinctly blunted interception of sunlight by a mercurian mountain rather more than eleven english miles high explained the effect to his satisfaction by carefully timing its recurrence he concluded rotation on an axis in a period of 24 hours four minutes. The first determination of the kind rewarded 20 years of unceasing vigilance. It received ostensible confirmation from the successive appearances of a dusky streak and blotch in May and June 1801. These, however, were inferred to be no permanent markings on the body of the planet, but atmospheric formations. The streak, at times, Drifting forwards, it was thought, under the fluctuating influence of Mercurian breezes. From a rediscussion of these somewhat doubtful observations, Bessel inferred that Mercury rotates on an axis inclined seventy degrees to the plane of its orbit in twenty-four hours fifty-three seconds. The rounded appearance of the southern horn seen by Scherter was more or less doubtfully caught by Noble 1864 burton and franks 1877 but was obvious to mr w f denning at bristol on the morning of november fifth eighteen eighty two that the southern polar regions are usually less bright than the northern is well ascertained but the cause of the deficiency remains dubious if inequalities of surface are in question they must be on a considerable scale and a similar explanation might be given of the deformations of the terminator or dividing line between darkness and light in the planet's phases first remarked by schroter and again clearly seen by trouvolo in eighteen seventy eight and eighteen eighty one the displacement during four days of certain brilliant and dusky spaces on the disk indicated to mr denning in eighteen eighty two rotation in about twenty five hours while the general aspect of the planet reminded him of that of mars but the difficulties in the way of its observation are enormously enhanced by its constant close attendance on the sun in his sustained study of the features of mercury Scherter had no imitator until Schiaparelli took up the task at milan in eighteen eighty two his observations were made in daylight it was found that much more could be seen and higher magnifying powers used, high up in the sky, near the sun, than at low altitudes, through the agitated air of morning or evening twilight. A notable discovery ensued. Following the planet, hour by hour, instead of making necessarily brief inspections at intervals of about a day, as previous observers had done, it was found that the markings faintly visible remained sensibly fixed, hence that there was no rotation in a period at all comparable with that of the Earth, and after long and patient watching, the conclusion was at last reached that Mercury turns on his axis in the same time needed to complete a revolution in his orbit. One of his hemispheres, then, is always averted from the Sun, as one of the Moon's hemispheres from the Earth while the other never shifts from beneath his torrid rays. The librations, however, of Mercury are on a larger scale than those of the Moon, because he travels in a more eccentric path. The temporary inequalities arising between his even pacing on an axis and his alternately accelerated and retarded elliptical movement, occasion, in fact, an oscillation to and fro of the boundaries of light and darkness on his globe over an arc of forty-seven degrees twenty-two minutes in the course of his year over eighty-eight days thus the regions of perpetual day and perpetual night are separated by two segments amounting to one-fourth of the entire surface where the sun rises and sets once in eighty-eight days Else there is no variation from the intense glare on one side of the globe and the nocturnal blackness on the other. To Schiaparelli's scrutiny, Mercury appeared as a spotty globe, enveloped in a tolerably dense atmosphere. The brownish stripes and streaks, discerned on his rose-tinged disk and judged to be permanent, were made the basis of a chart. They were not, indeed, always equally well seen, They disappeared regularly near the limb, and were at times veiled, even when centrally situated. Some of them had been clearly perceived by de Ball at Bothkamp in 1882. Mr. Lowell followed Schiaparelli's example by observing Mercury in the full glare of noon. The best time to study him, he remarked, is when planetary almanacs state Mercury invisible a remarkable series of drawings executed some at flagstaff in eighteen ninety six the remainder at mexico in eighteen ninety seven supplied grounds for the following among other conclusions mercury rotates synchronously with its revolution that is once in eighty eight days on an axis sensibly perpendicular to its orbital plane no certain signs of a mercurian atmosphere are visible The globe is seamed and furrowed with long, narrow markings, explicable as cracks in cooling. It is and always was a dead world. From micrometrical measures, moreover, the inferences were drawn that the planet's mass had a probable value about one-twentieth that of the Earth, while its mean density falls considerably short of the terrestrial standard. The theory of Mercury's movements has always given trouble. In Lalandi's, as in Maslin's time, the planet seemed to exist for no other purpose than to throw discredit on astronomers, and even to Lévière's powerful analysis, it long proved recalcitrant. On the 12th of September, 1869, however, he was able to announce, before the Academy of Sciences, the terms of a compromise between observation and calculation. They involved the addition of a new member to the solar system. The hitherto unrecognized presence of a body about the size of mercury itself, revolving at somewhat less than half its mean distance from the sun, or if farther, then of less mass and vice versa, would, it was pointed out, produce exactly the effect required of displacing the perihelion of the former planet thirty-eight minutes, a century more than could otherwise be accounted for. The planes of the two orbits, however, should not lie far apart, as otherwise a nodal disturbance would arise not perceived to exist. It was added that a ring of asteroids similarly placed would answer the purpose equally well, and it was more likely to have escaped notice. Upon the heels of this forecast, followed promptly a seeming verification. Dr. Leskerbald, a physician residing at Orgarese, whose slender opportunities had not blunted his hopes of achievement, had, ever since 1845, when he witnessed the transit of Mercury, cherished the idea that an unknown planet might be caught thus projected on the solar background unable to observe continuously until eighteen fifty eight he on march twenty sixth eighteen fifty nine saw what he had expected a small perfectly round object slowly traversing the sun's disk the fruitless expectation of reobserving the phenomena however kept him silent and it was not until december twenty second after the news of leverrier's prediction had reached him that he wrote to acquaint him with his supposed discovery The Imperial Astronomer thereupon hurried down to Orgarese, and by his personal inspection of the simple apparatus used by searching cross-examination and local inquiry, convinced himself of the genuine character and substantial accuracy of the reported observation. He named the new planet Vulcan, and computed elements, giving it a period of revolution slightly under twenty days. But it has never since been seen monsieur Lais, director of the brazilian coast survey thought himself justified in asserting that it never had been seen observing the sun for twelve minutes after the supposed ingress recorded at auguries he noted those particular regions of its surface as tre uniformis intensité. he subsequently however admitted leskerbald's good faith at first rashly questioned The planet-seeking doctor was, in truth, only one among many victims of similar illusions. Waning interest in the subject was revived by a fresh announcement of a transit witnessed. it was asserted, by Weber at Pecolo, April 4, 1876. The pseudo-planet, indeed, was detected shortly afterwards on the Greenwich photographs and was found to have been seen by M. Ventosa at Madrid, in its true character of a sun-spot without penumbra but levier had meantime undertaken the investigation of a list of twenty similar dubious appearances collected by haas and published by wolfe in eighteen seventy two from these five were picked out as referring in all likelihood to the same body the reality of whose existence was now confidently asserted and of which more or less Probable transits were fixed from March twenty-second, 1877, and October fifteenth, 1882, but, widespread watchfulness notwithstanding, no suspicious object came into view at either epoch. The next announcement of the discovery of Vulcan was on the occasion of the total solar eclipse of July 29, 1878. This time, it was stated to have been seen at some distance, southwest of the obscured sun, as a ruddy star with a minute planetary disk, and its simultaneous detection by two observers, the late Professor James C. Watson, stationed at Rawlins, Wyoming Territory, and Professor Lewis Swift at Denver, Colorado, was at first readily admitted. But their separate observations could, on a closer examination, by no possibility be brought into harmony if valid, certainly referred to two distinct objects, if not to four, each astronomer eventually claiming a pair of planets. Nor could any one of the four be identified with Lesker and Levyers' Vulcan, which, if substantial body revolving round the sun, must then have been found on the east side of that luminary. The most feasible explanation of the puzzle seems to be that Watson and Swift merely saw each the same two stars, in Cancer, haste and excitement doing the rest. Nevertheless, they strenuously maintain their opposite conviction. Intra-Mercurian planets have since been diligently searched for when the opportunity of a total eclipse offered, especially during the long obscuration at Caroline Island. Not only did Professor Holden sweep in the solar vicinity, But Pallisa and Trovolo agreed to divide the field of exploration and thus make sure of whatever planetary prey there might be within reach, yet with only negative results. Photographic explorations during recent eclipses have been equally fruitless. Belief in the presence of any considerable body or bodies within the orbit of Mercury is, accordingly, at a low ebb yet the existence of the anomaly in the mercurian movements indicated by leverrier has been made only surer by further research its elucidation constitutes one of the pending problems of astronomy end of chapter seven part one